0: Welcome to episode 15 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with host Matt Payne. Uh, Today's guest is a a photographer named Mark Metternich. Um, He's a pretty well-known dude. He's got some awesome work from Pacific Northwest and the American Southwest. And, uh, man, he actually is one of the sweetest images I've ever seen um, on his profile. Super jealous. (laughs) But, uh, you know, we had an awesome conversation about... um, uh, workshops and and about his his approach to photography and and leading workshops and spent a lot of time talking about um the art of of printmaking which i think is probably a lost art that not a lot of people are familiar with i think you guys will like this one um as usual uh please uh visit visit us on itunes or stitcher leave a review um and uh share it with friends and let's get the word out about the podcast and let me know what you think thanks a lot Uh, if there's any 20-minute gaps, we'll, we'll have to cut those out. <laughs> well, well, Mark, it's uh, it's really great to have you on the podcast, man.
1: Yeah, nice to finally do this, Matt.
0: I know. We've had to reschedule it like, what, like four times now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something ladies, like
1: that. Crazy lifestyles. And then um, you also have the same name as another friend of mine. And so sometimes when I saw you on social media, I was like, is that my other friend? Or oh, who is that? That's yeah, I have a friend named Matt Payne. So,
0: Oh, that's cool. So um, maybe I was
1: too nice to you thinking you were my other friend. I don't know.
0: Oh yeah. You're like, Oh, I should have listened to some of those episodes to make sure I knew what I was getting into here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I've interviewed some pretty cool people so far. I've had conversations with Aaron Babnick and Alex Noriega. Yep. Alex is cool. I know them both. Yeah. Michael Bolino. I'm sure he's uh, awesome. David Kingham.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, uh, you know, I actually lived in Portland for a couple of years there.
1: Oh, nice.
0: Yeah. You live in Oregon as well, right?
1: Uh, no longer.
0: Oh, no? Where do you live?
1: Yeah, I don't live in Washington. I don't live in California. I live in Florida.
0: Florida? What's in Florida, man? I just
1: moved to Florida. Um, A beautiful woman who loves me. That I'm getting into a relationship with. I've been dating for about 11 months now. And, okay, uh, well, that's a good but,
0: reason to move.
1: Yeah, and I didn't have kids. So I lived out of my rig as a traveling photographer about 300 plus days a year for the last few years. And, um, Got kind of tired of being by myself all the time and so i sort of opened up the idea of relationship again i'd been married for 20 years i, I uh, oh, wow. left my wife after 17 years and um, she did some things that you can imagine without me saying that would make me leave her and um, <laughs> then it broke my heart and so i left that town that was in the beaverton portland area and i yep. moved to a bend a loved bend my dad lived nearby. I loved Ben. Great place to grieve, um, and they have lots of beer there, so that helped me grieve. And then um, uh, finally, I just found myself in a town all by myself, and I was like, "Well, why am I sitting here all by myself? Why don't I just live out of my rig and use my hotspot, and run my business that way?" So for. About two years, I literally lived out of my car all year round. People would ask me, like, "Well, so where do you live?" And I said, "Wherever I'm at." And they like they'd be like, "Oh yeah, but I mean, really, where do you live?" And I'd say, "Wherever I'm at." I, homeless by choice. All I do is photograph and and uh, lead photography workshops here and there, and just traveling around. So after doing that for two years, I uh, I started kind of you know I, I tired of it to tell you the truth. Doing it that much and i am not tired of photography but and um finally after my heart kind of mended from uh the past relationship thing i kind of opened up the door to possible relationship and i met a girl from florida
0: Very nice. so
1: yeah pretty big move
0: what was your what were your favorite breweries in bend because those are some of my favorite breweries too
1: oh Trying to remember the one that sold out. That was a good one. They sold out to I think Budweiser and the the town was in an uproar about it. Um oh, I can't remember right now. See, I drank too much, so I can't <laughs> remember. <laughs>
0: yeah, there's so there's Boneyard and Crux huh.
1: I went to Boneyard. I don't know about Crux. There's like C- Cascade 13 Lakes, or 14 I think is there? Or fifteen or something. Yeah. And yeah, then the, the other end is-, is awesome for that. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, like when in Rome, do like the Romans. Um, as soon as I moved to town, I went to their Safeway that that looks like a lodge, like Timberline Lodge or something. And then you go in there and they have a aisle of beer that goes all the way down. They got about every pint that you can imagine there. So <laughs> because I was grieving the loss of my previous relationship, I tried a pint of pretty much everything.
0: Yeah, I had the same problem when I lived in Portland. I lived above Zupan's. And I basically jerk, like, oh, I'll I'll just go down and pick another bomber. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it was so dangerous. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So, so um, I think you know one of the things I think most people know you for. Well, two things I would say. Um, one is that insanely amazing photo you got at Crater Lake with the double rainbow. Yeah, like, that's insane. probably
1: like, the, my most popular photo. Mm-hmm.
0: No doubt about it, man. That sh- that shit was crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. That when was you shot one that, were most...
0: you just like going insane? Like, oh my god!
1: <sighs> yes. Um, and I, th- I, I'm so thankful that there was someone behind me because if there wasn't, then no one would believe that that was an actual photo. Um, what <laughs> I'll tell you a couple things about that. I was living in Bend and i'm a big advocate of studying the weather, and I you know i don't want to take off to some location it takes time, money, gas, you know God, and i could okay. be I could be working on my business, you know plugging something working on photos or something, so I was sitting behind my computer working on photos, and I was just studying the weather kind of periodically throughout the day and three days in a row, there were massive thunderstorms that went over crater Lake, and I could track them through whatever website I was looking at and um the first one was the day before that and it was absolutely terrifying. I mean, it was all on the it was all on the the same spot, but it was all on the other side and it was just boom, 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 boom everywhere. And then all of a sudden the the wind shifted and started blowing toward me. And then I was like, okay, that might not be good. And then it was blowing toward me really hard. And so I was like, I think this might head my way. So I packed up as fast as I could, was which was really like one to two minutes and, and the lightning was on me. I mean, just bang, 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 all over the place. And I actually ran down the side of the hill. That's like I think that altitude's like eight thousand feet up there, up at the top yeah. where you shoot that. But I ran down and actually it was on my phone talking to my friend, yelling, man, lightning's striking everywhere. One was like within hundreds of feet. And I, I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna get out of here alive. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I mean, I was absolutely terrified. I, there was one point where I was going to jump and just ditched on the ground and lay on the ground. But I, I ran to my car and finally got out of there. Um, so then the next day, you know, and that wore me out, just all the adrenaline. Next day, I'm working behind my computer, and I check the weather report again. And it's basically the same thing. Huge thunder cell heading toward Crater Lake, and it looked like it was going to arrive right about at sunset. So I was like, oh, man, do I need to drive all the way there again? Okay, so I will. So I went yeah, there. what is that like? A
0: three hour drive? Uh,
1: probably like more like two, I think, from Ben. Okay. Yeah, not too bad. Um, but I was just tired, you know, and I, I you know, I, I hate wasting time, and but, but you know, Thundercell going to Crater Lake again, so I was like, I, I you gotta go. And that's just what I say to myself. Gotta go. So I just packed up really quick, took off, went there, and I climbed up there to where I shot it. And I knew something awesome was going to happen. I was setting up. I had two cameras. And um, I was setting up. And it's funny. A ranger, or uh, I think it was a ranger, a ranger yeah. comes behind me. and He's like, yeah, what are you doing? And I said, oh, just taking photos. And he's like, oh, is that what you do? Whatever, da, da, da. And I said, yeah. And, and then we're looking and all of a sudden I said, "Whoa, check it out. There's a rainbow over there." And it was like on one side. And he was like, "Oh, wow, man." He goes, "This is incredible looking." And I was like, and then I was looking around and it's so stupid. "Oh wait, look at that. There's a rainbow over there too." And he was like, "Whoa, that's amazing." But then what happened was it grew and grew and grew into of course one rainbow. <laughs> it was like, you know, we were only seeing the bottom part of both, you know, sides of the rainbow. And when it, when it came up and came up and came up, this guy said, I have been here, I think he said 10 years, I have been working here 10 years, hiking the rim every day, and I have never seen anything like this. And I had the Sony a7R at the time, not the a7R 2 and I was having a lot of adapter problems. I thought I was shooting at 14 millimeters with the um, Rokinon 14 yeah, millimeter yeah. or whatever, and... But actually, it ended up. I ended up finding out later that actually it was zooming in to something like 24 because there was something weird going on with the connection of my lens. So I was supposed to have gotten the whole thing, but it got chopped off a little bit. But lightning was just striking, striking, striking. So I just put it in. I didn't have a uh, lightning trigger at the time, and I just put it in continuous mode on both cameras. And they were just going click, 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 click. One was shooting raw, one was shooting JPEGs. The JPEGs was just to catch lightning, you know, just in case it was facing sure. a different direction. And then um, yeah, and that's how I got the photo. Damn, I, dude, that's crazy. I just sped home and was calling people saying, Yeah, should I, you know, should I pump this out like today, tonight, before anybody else does? And I went to, at the time, uh, Ted Gore had that Area 51 Facebook page where, you know, some really great, awesome photographers were. And we were sort of critiquing each other before we'd really go live with our photos, try to get some awesome feedback from great photographers that we respect. And I put it on there and and I said, should I post it today? And they said, no, 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 no there everybody everybody, everyone was like get it just exactly right don't post it too quick even if somebody else got it wait 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 on this one this is a gold mine and uh so i listened to other people's feedback and so many people gave me input on that ted did i think everyone you know that's that I, i really respect that was you know was on that forum um gave me feedback and i made all the little tweaks and then i put it on online and um I still think today that that's the most famous of my photos, and everyone told me it was going to be.
0: No doubt about it, man. Like if, when I first saw it, I think I saw it on 500px. I was just like, my jaw dropped. I was like, dude, seriously? <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, man. Me, what else do unfair. you want? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Lightning but, strike, double rainbow. It did get cut off on the top. I wish. say you know...
0: like all you had, all you missing was a, like a unicorn or something.
1: Yeah, no sun star, because it's from behind. Someone thought, I actually had quite a few people, it went, that actually, I I didn't say anything, but that went absolute viral. I've only had a couple of photos, two, I think, go viral, but that one went so viral that people were sharing it all over the place to where my phone and my messages were ringing off the hook. For I think it was like five or six straight days where I didn't even get off of my chair, out of my underwear, didn't even shower. I was just trying to keep up with communications. It was amazing. <laughs> um, I think it got me a few gigs. You know, Somebody bought some photos or bought some videos, uh, drove tons of traffic to my website, you know, and... Um, but uh, you know that was and then that that was also in the peak 500px days where you know you'd actually yep. get a whole load of views if you had a great photo there.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Like so, uh, um, nowadays, it's not the same for sure.
1: The only thing that's close to that one in terms of my library, in terms of craziness, is my Wotan's uh, crescendo shot. And that's the one, I don't know if you know which one that is, but it's over with Wotan's Throne on the North Rim. And there's a hole, and there's mammatus clouds, there's a rainbow, oh, yeah, yeah. And there's lightning, a strike, and there's...
0: And, yeah, yeah, it's so balanced.
1: Crazy color, and I actually got n- knocked down by lightning uh just before I took that shot.
0: Damn, dude.
1: And... uh yeah. is It's, it's uh, one of the craziest stories. Every time I take people out there, I show them like, that's right there. That's where I got knocked down by lightning. It was an indirect strike. That's all I can tell you. Um, I just was, at one moment I was, you know, standing up and putting my gear, moving towards a place to put my gear. And then the next moment I'm on my face and I don't even know what happened, but I saw a flash, but I didn't hear anything. So from what, People have told me, and I can only go by, that is, I must have been like maybe knocked unconscious or something, but it was some kind of an indirect strike really close to me, but didn't hit me. And my tripod was aluminum back then. so. When I came to and realized what had happened, I just freaked out and I was like, what am I going to do? So I ran underneath this tree and I was like, duh, that's stupid. You know, you're not supposed to get under trees. And then I was like, well, I'm holding an aluminum tripod. We'll drop that. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to run back to your car or what? And I look and I see the scene and I was like, no way, I got to shoot this. So I just handheld him and I kind of climbed down this little kind of a cliff covey area, and i I just I, it, it was crazy the tree next to me there was this little tree right next to me and it was actually going Bzzz! <laughs> there was so much electricity in the air, and my ears were ringing, and so every time that would happen, I'd run into this little kind of alcove cave that's underneath where everybody shoots. most people never see it it's right out there at the very end where Roton throne is and um and I'd sit in there wait for like lightning to strike nothing would happen then I'd go back out and you know shoot some more handheld
0: Jeez, dude, uh, I have like a super big appreciation for lightning. Cause when I was a when I was a kid, my parents used to take me mountain climbing all the time here in Colorado. And when I was like eight years old, we got on top of a high thirteener, and like lightning came in, and mm. like it was the same thing. Like you could just hear it. Like everything was buzzing, and mm. like it's just a like, man. It's just like a good way to die. You know what I mean? Like it's, I know.
1: And the the best lightning photographers I know, like um klaus preby preby um i've met him a couple times and it's super nice guy he's a southwest guy i ask him well you know he's got all these lightning shots and he's like ah, i don't even think about it i've had lightning hit you know strike 50 feet from me so you got those types of people like ah, don't worry about it. just run out there and just do it and who cares you know the odds of you getting hit are so so slim but then you hear about these people getting killed like Thirty people in Florida per year, you know, out right. in soccer fields and things like that. <laughs> and Seriously. and and when lightning actually strikes within hundreds of feet, or maybe you know, you know, a football field from you, it is absolutely terrifying to me. Oh, know?
0: for sure, yeah. Like, cause I, I I spend a lot of time above treeline here in Colorado, and like, I guess the scary part about that is there's there's nowhere to take shelter. Like you're exposed nope. and and like. You're just kind of like, I guess I hope I, you just, there's nothing you can do. <laughs>
1: yeah. And so, I, I lead, uh, right,
0: I, guess. I, don't even know.
1: I lead Southwest workshops and one's called chasing monsoon light in the great Southwest. And the other one's the ultimate Southwest tour. And they're both during the peak monsoon season. And it's, I leave in like two days to go out there to do this. And It is... I don't sleep well at night, let me tell you. Um, the the (laughs) Two or three days before I leave because I'm thinking of all these potential disasters, you know. Someone can get struck by lightning. Um, Out there when the flash floods come and they hit, everything can change in just a moment. And there's so much responsibility. You know, we got to keep them safe. But they're also hiring me because they want to get really crazy awesome light and they want to get close to this stuff. So... um, I don't know. It's it's uh you just have to have a high dose of healthy respect for the power that you're dealing with for sure.
0: Yeah, no doubt. So, tell me a little bit about um your approach to leading workshops cuz that that's a topic that we've covered a lot on my podcast, but um I know that's something you do quite a bit and um you know, your name has actually come up on the podcast a little bit before, so I was curious about kind of what's your philosophy about um, being in the field with people and what are you teaching them and kind of what are you hoping they get out of it and things like that?
1: Um, well, since I make probably half to two-thirds of my income leading photography workshops for the last over 10 years now, um, probably do, probably can talk about it. Um, hmm. A lot to say. I love it. Uh, when I very first started out, it was I was posting photos, and people had sent me an email. I was living in the Northwest, and of course, it's so beautiful there. You know, you just post a photo from some waterfall or something. And on some forum, and people would be like, hey, you know, can you take me out there? Do do you do workshops? And then I was like, oh, well, uh, uh, let me, I'll I'll get back to you. And then then you see Mark Adamus was, you know, really coming on strong back then. That was, you know, we're talking about 13 years ago, 10, 11, 12, 13 years ago. But anyway, um, I was like, oh, wow, you can make $400 a day or $500 a day or whatever, you know. And um, to me, that was crazy you know and then I started thinking well what what if you lead two or three people or four people it's like so um it 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 happened organically I didn't seek it out in fact I didn't really want to do it for me photography was getting away from people and having my peaceful time to clear my head and it was you know sort of my spiritual time and um but then as I my reputation grew online um, I got more and more requests to do it and I began to lead people and it started out one person and then I thought well that was fun and how about I'll try two next time and then I did two and eventually I got to where I was leading groups and felt very comfortable with it um, I lead basically um, I'm, I'm actually leading workshops even internationally now but my the gist is I do the Northwest in spring I do the Northwest, you know, Oregon, Washington, but mainly Oregon in spring and fall. I'm doing the Southwest during the monsoon seasons during the summertime, so August, September, sometimes all the way into October. Last year, I did ten workshops uh, between private and group in the Southwest, and it, it was, you know, I, I would do a workshop, take four or five days off to do my own shooting and resting, and then I would do another workshop, and I was out there for months, and that was a blast. On um, then I've done Patagonia. I'm preparing for a Uganda Africa workshop. I have a workshop coming up, uh, mastering printmaking, um, probably with Robert Park from Nevada Art Printers. I got a, a lot of things going on. Plus, I'm also studying Florida now that I live here. So, yeah, lot totally of stuff, different, huh? A lot of stuff going on. Um, as far as the philosophy and how I do them, and you know what I hope people get out of it. The way I do my workshops isn't gonna gel with everyone who's out there looking to do a workshop because I want to put people in the place that has the highest percentage of chance of good light. And by going on a linear itinerary, day one we're gonna be here, day two we're gonna be here, and day three we're gonna be here, you are radically cutting those percentages. I study the weather constantly and I make decisions and sometimes right on the fly. And I know that Mark Adamus does that and sometimes he does that to the extreme. I try to find a balance sort of between the people who want more linear itineraries. And people who can, you know, be at Mount Rainier and say, "No, we need to go to Death Valley." <laughs> so <laughs> I, I try to find some somewhere in between. But people need to know that up front before they join one of my workshops, because they may end up driving a lot. They may not be driving a lot. They may be sleeping out of their car. They may be getting a hotel all the time. So, huh. but each but each workshop is different. I have some that are a little more radical for the more radical people, and then some that are a lot more easy too. Um, but that's. That's the main thing, I think, is I I want my workshops fun, and I also want them to be in the best possible position that we can put them in for great light. Just one of my last ones in the Northwest, we studied on the last day. This was a private workshop. We studied all of Oregon, and a massive storm came in, and I could not even find a single place that wasn't going to be pouring down rain. Now, you can shoot the Columbia River Gorge waterfalls, but this guy was done with the waterfalls and he didn't want to shoot any waterfalls and so I just kept studying every possible weather you know website I could find or app or everything and I kept thinking Smith Rock might be the place so I told him it was a six and a half hour drive I said you know what probably not going to work, but I think our best chances are here. And there's a couple of different locations, not just Smith Rock, but around that area that may be shootable. What do you think? He's like, let's go for it. So we did and man, it paid off. You know, it's one of those moments where a massive storm is coming through and then it breaks and light beams are coming through. And that, that photo's on my website now and people are just, you know, they're loving it. So that's what I try to do as much as possible. But when you're dealing with groups, you have to try to have a, at least a little bit of linearness to make some sense. You know, you don't want to go from the top of Oregon down to the bottom and then back up to the top or whatever. You try to maybe make some kind of kind of a loop to give them a variety. Sure. Um, I'll tell you this about workshops. I did them – I'm just being really honest. I did them because they were a good source of income and – what happened was I grew to really enjoy them. And to tell you the truth, I enjoy them now more than I ever have. And most of that is because I lived out of my car for a couple of years, at least two years, completely by myself. And the only time I was around people was when I was uh, doing a workshop or if I went way out of my way to go visit a friend or a family member. And I reached the end of me being able to be by myself a lot. <laughs> that
0: makes sense. But I guess one of the things that's kind of intrigued me about this story is um, it's, it's one of the reasons I, you know, I'm into photography is kind of the same thing you were talking about. It, it's kind of like my time to get out into the wilderness and be alone and kind of connect with nature and and all that stuff. Definitely. But but like when you're teaching other people, it doesn't be, it's not, that doesn't provide that anymore. So how has that transition looked for you? Are you getting that, that source of fulfillment in other ways or?
1: Yes. Yeah. That's a very good question. I got to the point where I really looked a lot to Mark Adamus over the years. There's other photographers and I didn't you know, necessarily like every single thing that he put out, but he was my main inspiration for many years. And so you know, I'd hear, hey, he did 300 days a year on the road, so I'd be like, 300 days? Okay, well I'm gonna try to do 100 this year, and then 150 the next year, and then 200 the next year. It was, it was like, I don't know, it just inspired me, very much inspired me. Um, once I got up to 300 days, plus, and I beat, I've gone over 300 days. That means absolutely being in the field, either shooting or leading workshops with people. Um, what I found was I'm not him and I don't want to be him. And I have no desire to be him. When I reached that end, I, there was a point where I was, uh, I would get a cabin out of Kanab, Utah, and I was down there for about five straight months. I was going to try to make it through the whole winter all by myself. Just, you know, just You know, kind of like owning it in a way, just shooting all these places that people, you know, they'll come for a week or two and then they leave. But I was just going to stay there and just keep shooting and shooting and shooting. And I got to the point where I literally started going stir crazy. And it's hard to describe what that means, but you know you'll see one of those television shows, somebody up in Alaska who's boarded themselves in their house, and people can't even talk to them and you know they they lose it they snap. I believe that human beings are designed to be in relationship with one another, and what happened was I reached my limits and i really i'm a I'm kind of militant in how hard I push myself, and I remember telling my dad my dad's a you know marine and tougher than about anybody I've ever met and I said, I'm gonna push myself so hard this year. This was before I did it. And he says, Be careful, Mark. Don't push yourself too hard. <laughs> I, I, and I didn't say anything. I was just like, Well that was weird. Why would he say that? You know, he's he's so tough. Why would he say something like that? Well, I did. I think I, in fact, I think I pushed myself maybe even too hard. I got to the point where I couldn't make it even one single day longer. I felt like I was losing it. felt like I was going to snap or lose it. Not snap, but just I, I had depression and anxiety. I couldn't work on my photos. I had no inspiration. I just felt utterly, utterly lonely. And what happened was I learned a really powerful lesson that I don't think very many people get the luxury of learning And that is being in isolation so long, I started realizing how absolutely valuable friends, family, community, service, being in relationship with people was. And where previously, I knew it was important, but I think I took it for granted. And I I pushed it so hard that... All I could think about was i can 't wait to get back up to the Northwest, be around my parents, be around my friends, be around community i 'm going to go visit them all and, and I got to the point where literally I, this is when I actually met this girl online. We started talking, and she started asking me you know you 're out there a lot you know do you, can you, could you handle being you know in a relationship with someone who 's got three boys and then we 're a close family system? What I told her was, I would rather be in a room full of people that are irritating me than be by myself any longer. <laughs> and I have since then, that was about a year ago, I have since then developed a super intolerance to being alone. Huh. Um, I think I hurt myself by being so alone. Yeah. And that
0: we well, I mean, we're, 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 we're not social animals for a lot of people. I mean, we're social animals, we're wired Mm -hmm. to to relate to other people. And like, so it makes total sense. Um, I guess another question I had about about that whole experience for you and and workshops is, um, have you ever found because it sounds like you're, you're high, definitely highly connected to the natural world. and, And that's an important part of what got you into photography. Have you ever found that your drive for <clears throat> making your clients happy or getting the best light or or um you know the 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 motivations that you have about having a good workshop have those ever conflicted with your connection to the natural world or to how you treat the natural world or anything like that
1: oh that's a that's a good question it's kind of a complex question, too. Um, <laughs> I'm known so, for that. So in a, I'm going to reword some of my understanding of that. So like sure. by leading workshops all the time, does that make me go and stand on a vista and just sort of yawn and not really get the... You know that same mm, that I used to get out of it. That's one thing I kind of hear in that question, and um, um,
0: that. And then I was, I guess, to maybe further clarify, um, you know, well, I'm just gonna be blunt. Mm-hmm. Taking people, taking a bunch of people to these locations, can have a negative effect on. Those locations, and mm-hmm. potentially, if it's a popular location, it could have a negative effect on other people who are there's experience of that location. So, how how, how do you balance those two things?
1: Um, okay, I'll I'll answer the first one. If I forget the second one, please just re- remind me again. Um, the first one, as far as yeah, there's some effect that. You know, I can remember certainly the first times I took off all by myself and had never done workshops and I went out to the Southwest and I, you know, was seeing the North Rim for the first time or White Pocket or some one of these you know, awesome places, but I still have a profound appreciation for, you know, the beauty of nature or what I see as creation and it, it speaks to me volumes and still ministers to me in a spiritual way, too. But there is definitely a bit of a doling when you're doing doing it, you know, day in and day out. So to tell you the truth, that's one thing I'm excited about living in Florida. Now I'm cutting my workshops down to where I'm only gonna go out for like a couple of weeks at a time and I'm sure. not gonna do as many. And I'm being more selective and I wanna be more home and all of that. So there's that part. Um second of all, this is a little kind of an insert because this isn't this isn't exactly what you asked me, but in my huge 360-degree turnaround in terms of appreciating people, I have come to see that there is a beauty in relationship and serving people at a level that I've never understood before. So the work, the workshops that are coming up, I'm doing a much better job than I ever have before. Not that I did a bad job, but um, I just really appreciate the people. And so that's heightened my enjoyment of the workshops and really, you know, helping them to be able to see these, you know, it's, it's an incredible privilege that we get to be able to go to these places and see these things. Yeah. Um, it's impact on, let's say, other people shooting in the same location i generally am avoiding locations where a lot of other people shoot so it's quite rare that i take some people to a place where there's a bunch of other people trying to shoot the same thing now i've got a workshop coming up and we're starting out at a popular place but it's a place where there's a lot of times hundreds of people there but that's the only time the other times generally speaking most of the time i'm avoiding the crowds So and then as far as the impact on, let's say, the environment, you know, that's 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 a tough one. Um, I absolutely am an advocate of uh, leave no trace. In fact, leave the place better than when you were there. So as much as possible, I apply those principles. If I see garbage sitting on the ground or somebody left their water bottle on the ground, I pick it up and stick it in my backpack and. Um, and I teach people those things too, yeah. So, but I we really love these places, we all do, all of us photographers that do nature and landscape. We love these places and we want them protected, like I've heard that some of the places that I have taken people they're going to start making it harder and harder to get to one of the places Toro weep you you cannot just drive to Toro weep and photograph and stay there anymore. you have to go online and and you have to get a camp spot and you can't just show up and photograph and they they close the gate at a certain time. you can't go out there and do that anymore. now am I disappointed? actually in a way I'm not because it's such a special location. Um, I, I, I want us to keep those things really special. So, you know, I kind of see both sides of the coin. I uh I'm really appalled when I go to a place like you see like a Zion, you know, a hundred people shooting off the bridge or whatever. Right, I right. never take people to places like that. If they want to do that, like once one client was like, Hey, can you take us into uh Antelope Canyon and Page? And I said, You know what? We have a little midday break. If you want to go in there, go for it. But no, I'm not gonna take anybody in there. I'm not gonna take anybody into where there's hordes and hordes and hordes of people. Um I'm more like trying to find special locations as much as I can that few people have been to and sometimes rarely I can take people to a place that almost no one's ever been to but we do it with care as much as care as possible
0: cool no I mean that that's that's kind of um that's good to hear cuz I think um that's you know it's a tough balance and I you know I think uh one of the things I think is kind of an interesting opportunity that we have as photographers and especially those of you that are leading workshops is you can actually uh, grow other people's appreciation of these places and, and get them to be advocates for preserving those locations. Definitely. Um, which I think is pretty cool. That's a pretty powerful, pretty powerful job that we we have undertaken whether we want to or not.
1: <laughs> a lot of people have tunnel vision that come on these workshops. They are just trying to get a photo. Yeah. And I am often saying, hey, take a look at that or take a look at that. And my dad was a mountain guide. He, um, you know, he's a world-class mountain climber, started in his early 30s, and he's now 79, and he's still solo climbing. And he has over 220 major summits um, underneath his belt, and he wrote a book about it. And, um, he used to tell me that when he, he wasn't a professional guide, just people asked him just, you know, kind of like me, although he didn't get paid right. for it. They just asked him, would you, you know, would you take us up this mountain? And he'd be like, okay. Um, but he said to me, he said, m- most people, or at least, you know, a lot of people, all their goal is, is to get to the top and get back down just to, he, he calls them peak beggars. And yep. I've noticed in photography a lot of people they just got to, they just want to get that photo but they're not like listening to the sound of the wind going through the trees or they're not seeing the beauty that's going on over there or you know just all of this awesome stuff that's around us the crashing waves below us. I really try as much as possible anyway to get people to stop and you know appreciate what it is that we're experiencing at a at a much deeper level and to, to to i think also grow that appreciation for conservation as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um it's funny cuz whenever i'm 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 you know i live in Durango so i'm around some of the best mountains in Colorado and i spend a lot of time hiking and climbing them and my good friend of mine calls me a peak bagger but in actuality i'm not really a peak bagger. I just really like the experience of the whole experience of climbing a mountain in terms of not only getting to the top, but the journey and also the photos that are our photo, photo opportunities are on the way and things like that. But Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people here in Colorado that, that do call themselves peak baggers and all they're trying to do is get as many as possible. And it's kind of the same. Yeah, you're right. It's a very similar, similar type of attitude, I guess you could say. I also think Um, we're
1: in a really strange time in history right now. I've been doing this very seriously since about 2002 and just in the last four years it's almost exponential the amount of people that are going to these locations and a lot of it driven by online you know publicity of these locations but also we've got a massive population explosion going on in the world and at least some years ago when i did some research photography was the most popular hobby in the world And I don't know if that's true now. I'd have to do a Google search to double check that on that fact. But um, at one point, I remember reading that. And so, I—it's a tough one. I don't know what we're going to do. You know, we've got so many people populating the earth, um, and so many people bringing cameras out. I just don't know what we're going to do. And and many places that were so sacred. you know, just even four or five years ago, you take some one person to a special location. Now everybody knows about it and people are trampling all over it. So it's, it's, I don't know, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to, you know, deal with when you really have appreciation for nature. But you know what, this sounds maybe a little bit wacky to some people, but we are nature too. And some people are like, well, you know, we shouldn't step on a plant, or we shouldn't step on an insect, or some people take it to extremes, but or, or they think that technology is not nature. We are a natural part of this earth. Ants destroy things and fix things and build things, and they move things around, and so do other animals. And we, I believe, are—and I have a spiritual belief about this stuff, too, but just sticking with the natural side— um, I believe we have a right to be here and we have a right to see the things that we see. And But I do think it's wise to do as best of a job as possible of leaving no trace. And in fact, uh, it makes me mad now. Uh, the more years go by, the more if I see some kind of stupid thing like graffiti, just, oh, oh you know, I know, graffiti in some sacred slot canyon or something or whatever. I'm just like, oh. You know, I I want to find out who that person was or whatever. Or here's another one. Maybe call up the authorities of the area and say, hey, what can we do to help fix an area or improve an area? And um, so I think we need to be doing that.
0: Yeah, I agree. So I I want to shift gears a little bit. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about one of the other things I think people know you for, and that's... um, um, cause I haven't, re- it's funny cause I haven't really heard anyone else kind of like no one else comes to mind when I think of this and it's about, um, the process of, uh, print And I know that, um, you have tutorials on your website and things like that. And, and that's kind of something that you're really into, but I wanted to kind of just talk to you a little bit about what, what about that process? Um, what got you into like even caring about that process and wanting to teach other people how to do it?
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for that question. Um, when I teach like via Skype or I teach, you know, sometimes I'm asked to go to photo clubs and speak and teach, or, or, uh, maybe I do a workshop and I have an extra day of just post-processing training. Printmaking almost always comes up. Not that The majority of photographers or landscape nature photographers are serious printmakers, but it always comes up. And I always say, I know where my strengths and my weaknesses are, generally speaking. And I'm not, you know, I I, I don't want people to think I'm arrogant when I have confidence about the print area, but I have really put in my research and I've put in my hard, hard work over, you know, 13 years, mastering these processes, talking to the top experts Um, You know, engineers, print gurus, but the book writers that are really famous, things like that, trying to get into the nitty gritty of everything from capture all the way to a master print. I am obsessed about it. And (laughs) um, I think... And I love teaching it. Like um, the day before yesterday, somebody asked me to do a two hour Skype session and teach them, you know, how do I master the print processes? And I said, I can do it in two hours. So, you know, we're going to record it. You're going to have to go back over it because I'm going to be throwing so much information your way. But we can do it every single step from, you know, capture all the way to interpolation, grain simulation, and, you know, color management, everything. Um, how that grew out. Well, I'm kind of a passionate person to begin with, and but I remember when that really grabbed my heart, there were a couple of things. I saw this guy, um, Christopher Burkett, he was on OPB, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and he was a guy, when he was a kid, he was blind, and then he got his sight back, and oh, wow. I don't know the exact details, but something like that. And I saw a show about him, and he was a large format photographer that was selling his photos for like $10,000 each. And they were magnificent. Um, I've seen him in person, and I've actually uh, communicated communicated with him through email before. But so he was super fascinated. And so he went to like these extremes. He used to be like a monk. And then he decided he wasn't going to be a monk and got married. But when he was a monk, I think he worked like 12 hours a day, six or seven days a week, and and just, you know, uh, was just super dedicated to what he was doing. So in the dark room, he would literally put in, I think it was either 12 or 14 or 16 hour days, six days a week just making these prints and he would I think he bought some kind of lens that was like a million dollars or something like that from NASA oh, wow. so he'd be getting the most purest light on his enlargements and whatever and um when I watched the show there's something about integrity taking integrity as far as possible that just resonated with me and so I wasn't going to switch and become a large format photographer I, it was during the time when digital was really starting to come on the scene, megapixels were coming up and, and, you know, um, digital print processes were getting good. And so, but I love that idea of integrity. It's like, what is the best that we can do? Even if you don't have the best lens or the best camera or whatever, what, what is the best that we can do with what we have? And um, I just got obsessed. And the other reason is because at that time, I didn't know I was going to be doing workshops and doing these other things that I do for a living. I had my eye on the print market. I wanted to do my own gallery or co-brand with somebody and do a major gallery. So I was really trying to figure out how do we get the absolute most detail out of prints? How do we manage the, you know, the color management side so that what we see is exactly what we get to where, I mean, even the colors are are exact and all of that. And um, for many years there, I was absolutely obsessed. In fact, one time I was on a road trip and um, this was years back, but I saw this book in the bookstore and it was something image sharpening by Bruce Frazier. And I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Pulled it out, fairly thick book. And I start flipping through it. It was like, the whole book is about sharpening. I mean, don't you just (laughs) don't you just use the unsharp mask, <laughs> you know? No, right? And so I was like, that's crazy. So I b- decided to buy it, and I just kind of threw it to the side. And then one day I picked it up started reading it, and I loved it. In fact, I read it probably like four or five times to the point where the pages were falling out. And um, that guy passed away. He was one of the greatest Photoshop gurus in history and color management gurus. And that was really when I was uh, you know, getting obsessed about this. And at that time, I was in process of moving to Vegas to try to pull off a full-on gallery, maybe on the Strip. And that was just before 2006. The economy hit. It all fell apart, went through a bankruptcy and more. And so I lost my desire to try to do my own gallery. Still don't have any desire to try to do my own gallery. But during that time, when I was you know um i was making my living doing various things with photography and then i'd do some, some once in a while a part-time job when i went through the bankruptcy i kind of had to start all over and i began to start teaching photography uh through Skype and private lessons and i even i even put a, a thing out in Las Vegas on Craigslist you know teaching post processing and i got a steady stream of Students, but what happened was I got a couple of awesome gigs from really high end art um, gallery photographers to where I got to do their post processing, and so I got oh, to wow. really put into practice everything I was learning. You know, should I sharpen this much or a little bit more, a little bit less? Is capture sharpening really going to improve the quality of a print? Can you use grain simulation in a way that creates the perfect illusion of more? quality detail and all of these things that i was learning and um in fact one guy did about thirty thousand dollars worth of prints for his gallery under a confidentiality agreement and we became friends and um that's when i really got to like test everything out and not very many people you know will ever get that opportunity to make that many prints and really like master the processes
0: right right right
1: so by doing that, I really got to try this, try that, try the theory, see what actually you know comes out on a print, what doesn't come out on a print. And so that's really kind of how I developed the expertise. Um, there's not a lot of people that have that expertise out there. There's so many people that can make incredible images that look great for web. A lot of big names come to me, and I'm not going to name names, but it sometimes surprises me, and they'll they'll say, hey, can I send you some files, and can you tell me if you think that you know you're the print guy so can you tell me if you think that i can make like a you know 40 inch print out of this or whatever and i'm like yeah no problem just send it to me i'll take a look at it and it's trash and it's you know it's got artifacting all over it or there's been too much stre- stretching and skewing or they had the um you know capture sharpening and their raw uh, default setting on and they didn't know it and so it created artifacting in their sky and their smooth surfaces stuff like that so um People are coming to me still, it's a a niche market, but people are coming to me constantly when it comes to print and I love teaching it. And I think my favorite thing is, is when you can straighten out the problems that they're having, they get to make these incredible prints that they have pride about and you you really feel like you've done something for them that really made a difference in their life in their photography
0: yeah man I mean if shit if you've (laughs) like for people that are listening like if you've never printed a photo and spent some good dollars on it or had a someone pay you for a photo and it turned out bad because of color management or or whatever like it's a tough lesson to learn I've I've had that happen to me gosh at least two or three times now where it's like I order a print and like for some reason like either the colors were all messed up or something and it yeah it can really ruin your day for sure so it's it's cool to it's cool to know that you know there's other ways to for people to learn learn more about how to do that
1: it's a science and um i have two videos on it one is uh uh mastering fine art print making and color management and the other one is the ultimate sharpening workflow for fine art printing in the first one about color management that one, the content is absolutely solid, but I recorded it in my little apartment in Bend with cars going by with a bad microphone. So it, oh, it yeah. but the content's solid. But um one of the things I remember doing Because people ask me like, wow, why don't my prints come out like a monitor? Well, I actually put monitors behind me and then I take a print and I stick it up so that the camera is seeing the print and the monitor side by side. The monitor is blowing out the video and you can't hardly even see the print. And it's like Uh, I wanted people to say because prints aren't monitors. Monitors are like light bulbs blasting us in the eye. And they are what we are using 100% for the exact feedback of what we want the image to look like. Prints right. cannot look like monitors because monitors and prints are so radically different. So some people think, you know, they should just be able to send that to the printer, make a tweak to it, and it should be looking like they saw. Um, you know, if you're in a hurry and you don't want to spend any time on your prints, you can make a quick tweak or two to them and get them, you know, good enough maybe. But if you really want masterful prints, you actually really have to learn a lot of new things.
0: No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, personally, I don't even bother with like monitor calibration or anything like that, but I do a lot of test printing first to kind of, to get, kind of an idea of what it's gonna look like and make adjustments from there. But man, it's tedious process for sure. Yeah. Well
1: I just um I since I one of the things I do is I do post processing services for other people, including like, you know, teach via Skype. But um a guy sent me in this week an image of his raw. He trusts my processing, but he showed me how he processed it two different ways, a little bit warmer, a little bit cooler, and kind of how he wants it to look. So I went off of his feedback. He said he wanted something between the two. So I processed it my way, but in a lossless way that would print really well, calibrated just for print, and it's for postcards. And we're working with a postcard, Postcard company that doesn't really have their act together in terms of knowing what they're doing, you know, and color management like a like a super custom boutique lab like Nevada Art Printers, Um, but but uh, uh, so you you never know what you're going to get, you know. You don't know if these guys don't know at all what they're doing or what, but they wanted in CMYK, they wanted a couple of different things. So basically, I taught him everything that he needed to do on his side, as I did one of his. I just recorded what I was doing, and I was teaching as I was doing one of his pieces. And um, But we did everything exactly perfect, as best as humanly possible. Um, we uh, used a certain ICC profile, and we soft-proofed, and we worked on a white background, and we did all of these different little tricks. And I was really nervous, and I actually got his postcard today. And I opened it up. It was a It's a hard proof. So, you know, do a test print or a hard proof. And um, what happens a lot of times is they'll send it to my client and me at the same time. We'll both look at them under, you know, over a day or two under different kinds of light. We'll make some decisions and then we'll make that last tweak. But it came out almost absolutely perfectly spot on. And so I was like, yeah, it just kind of just proved to me that, you know, if the lab has their act together, that's, that's the key. There's a lot of different labs out there. Sometimes they don't have their act together, but if they do and you send in things the right way, you should be able to get pretty darn close to perfect. And then when you get that test print back, you might make that one small little tweak instead of, Kind of like you're saying, like I used to when I very first started making prints, I would just send it to the lab, get it back and be like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's too warm, it's too saturated, it's too dark, you know, and I try to guess and make the adjustments and then send it in and get it back again. And that that's just a lot of wasted time. You, you really got to calibrate and you got to really learn how to, uh, you know, set up your system so that what you see on your monitor is extremely close. You can never get perfect. You can't get perfect, but you can get extremely close to what can come out of a machine.
0: For sure. Um, It's funny you were talking about, um, it's kind of a segue, but you were talking about uh, someone sending you their raw file and having you process it, I think maybe four, four or five years ago. I, I'm not going to name any names, but I think, well, I will a little, but I think I someone, already
1: know what you're going to talk about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think someone won like the landscape photographer of the year award. Be, uh, they had like, I think they had Alex Noriega process his photo, and then they won the F- landscape photographer of the year with someone else processing their image. I was like, that's ridiculous.
1: <laughs> no comment. I just think that's- i love alex and i think he's one of the best photographers on the planet but yeah i heard about that whole thing um oh my god do i have an opinion about that you know um
0: you don't actually have to have one i just yeah it's funny that's even a thing you know i can
1: say that i do run into a certain percentage of people that are on my workshops they're wealthy they are very busy they have almost no time in a whole year to even barely take a workshop, and, and they have the money, and they want to be able to send their image to a lab. And they right. want that lab to develop the image with integrity. And then send it back to them, so I can see that kind of idea. You know, I I really thought digital labs were going to be springing up left and right over the, you know, even before now. And I don't really see much of that. I do see people like me, you know, accepting people's files and working on them for them, sending them back to them. Um,
0: Well, it's because no one's printing. (laughs) Yeah, there's not. not I mean, there's not a ton of market for it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and I, I you know, I, I do that work for people. Um, I would say the smaller percentage of people, they just say, hey, I love your work. Just do whatever you want to it and send it back to me, and then maybe I'll make some suggestions. So I'll right, work right. on it, and I'll do it in a way that's lossless so that they can get great, great prints out of it. I'll send it to them. They'll, they'll, they'll say, hey, it looks awesome, but could you warm up this area just a little bit or whatever? I get those kinds of people. I get, um, people who will give me an example of what they want, but they want me to do it with a little more integrity so that there's not like, you know, sharpening grain in their sky or whatever else. Um, and then I get some people who just send me their photos that are already done in TIFF or PSD and they want me to maybe make tweaks to them to get them, you know, prepped for print. So sort of depends. Sure. Um... I don't know. I, I It's hard to, hard to say what I think about that, but I, I will say, you know, if I was rich and I was just bouncing around the planet taking photos and wasn't interested in post-processing, and there is, there's a small percentage of people that just, they just have no interest in post-processing. They just want a lab. So I can kind of see that, but yeah, you know, I don't know what else.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get it, I, I mean, I get it, but it's, I don't know. It's kind of like buying all the art supplies and having someone else paint. <laughs> <laughs> and then claiming it as your painting. Anyway, yeah. um, so two last questions. Um, they're kind of two questions I always try to ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Um, first one is, um, so based on the name of the podcast, uh, F-Stop Collaborate and Listen, what advice do you have for other landscape photographers?
1: Um. Well, can you get a little more specific? Because all I would say yeah, is I mean, just, uh, love what you on. do, enjoy what you do, stay passionate. But what, can you get a little more specific on that?
0: Yeah, cool. I mean, just um, around collaborate, collaborating and listening.
1: <clears throat> do I have any advice about collaborating and listening um, as a landscape photographer? Um, I will say I am always learning. I am always learning. In fact, uh, with all that travel and just photographing so much for a little while there, I couldn't do post-processing work or teach um, via Skype or screen sharing private lessons um, because I was on the, out in the field too much. When I teach, it slows me down and I have to really think through what it is that I'm going to be teaching somebody. And I learn so much from teaching. And I also learn so much from my clients. My client's I just heard uh, Ryan Dyer in um, another podcast, and he was talking about how his clients will often say, oh, well, you know, there's an easier way to do that. All you do is do this. And and then you'd be like, oh, wow, I had no idea, and it changes everything, you know? So um, I'm a huge believer, advocate, always have been, and always remaining teachable. In fact, when I got into photography, it was sort of when digital was just coming on the scene. 2003 is what was when camera raw came out and I got, yeah. I had a Canon 10 D and I was, with people were like, well, what's this raw stuff, you know? And everybody, everyone was telling me I should be shooting film. And, um, but what I noticed was, is there was these old school photographers, you know, not to down them or anything, but they were film and they would, they were sticking to film and they weren't going to change or whatever. And what I noticed is a lot of people get kind of get stuck in their ways and then they 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 turn off the learning or they shut down the learning and they decide to stop learning i've I have a counseling background by the way i'm not a I'm not an actual counselor, but um, I did do training and counseling and in some of my classes I took they were about being teachable you know really listening and and always remaining teachable and so I can't advise that enough. I think if you don't, think, you'll get stuck in a I think rut. that's great
0: advice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I also have a counseling background. That's kind of funny. Oh, but, cool. Um, uh, but, you know, I do a lot of management now, a lot of people managing and stuff like that. And one of the things I always try to teach uh, people that work for me is like always have a, always be curious and always wanting to learn. Like if you, if you act like you know everything, there's a really good chance you don't. And a, and you're going to miss out on something that's going to make you better at your job or make the process better or whatever. And so, yeah, definitely like having a learning attitude is for sure. The
1: lady who taught this class that I'm kind of referring to, I went to this class like 15 years ago, and she said, always have a teachable spirit. And she is now about eighty-two years old and she has kept a youthful spirit, a teachable spirit. She's lived it her whole life and never's gotten in those kinds of ruts and she's lived an incredible philanthropic type of life. And so um as much as I can I always, always, you know, I if someone says, hey, you're not listening to me or you're not being teachable or whatever, I always am like, you know, apologetic and really try to learn. Yeah. So, but cool, man. but and the other thing is, you know what? Things are changing. They're changing fast. They're changing so fast it almost freaks us out. We don't even know where this exactly is going. And so it's so easy to get into our little like, okay, well this works, but well, you know what? Another year or two, that's not going to work anymore. So it's we have to sort of be moldable and pliable to to, to go along with the processes. I just I just knew. Back then, when I very first started, I don't want to be one of these older guys one day. that I'm getting older, but I don't want to be one of these older guys one day. It's just set in my ways. I want to stay on the edge. I think that um, um, Ansel Adams, um, I know a couple people that kind of knew him, and they said that he was totally like that, just always teachable, always huh. up on you know whatever the newest thing was coming out or the new thing, and he was interested in it instead of getting set in his ways. So I that's don't know. awesome. I, just, I think yeah. it's awesome to do that if we can.
0: Absolutely, man. So my last question is: um, if you know you were like looking on your phone at the podcast that you subscribe to, and and uh, it popped up to say that the new episode of my podcast was out, and you saw the name, whose name would you want to see that you'd be really excited to hear about? <sighs>
1: You know I have a load of photographers that there's so many great photographers out there now it's just to me it's almost gotten ridiculous
0: I know right
1: Yeah and, and as soon as you think you got this list of like okay these are the top 5 or 7 or 10 that you're you know none all of a sudden there's these new ones you know that you didn't you've never heard of and they're like whoa so you know Anyone who inspires me, I would love to hear from, and I have, you know, I have a list of. I wouldn't want to like go down the list because I wouldn't want to omit somebody, but um, I'd love to hear Mark Adamus. I'd like to hear him on a podcast. I he, he seems to be hard to get nailed down for podcasts. I was asked the same question on a different podcast about maybe a year, year and a half ago. And I mentioned him and I still haven't heard him in a podcast. Maybe he's done it. I just (laughs) haven't seen it, but, um, I would love to hear, you know, some really interesting questions asked of him, but, you know, any of the any of the great photographers you've probably already, you know, even had on your show. Um, I, I really like Ryan Dyer's work, I like Ted Gore's work, I like Aaron Babnik's work, I like Alex Noriega, love his work. I in fact I was preaching his work for a couple of years and people were like, Oh, really? Yeah, really? And then what happens? He wins photograph you know, the photography of the year award or whatever. Right. And um I was like, See, no one listens to me, but you know, I, I knew that there was something special about his work. I love his ability to present the subtle in a powerful way and he's yes. always been able to do that and it just it makes me drool and um but I'm not so much a you know person to person you know follower anymore it's more kind of like image to image but if you haven't interviewed him that would be one have you interviewed him
0: alex or mark alex Yeah, Alex was on about a month ago.
1: Oh, okay. I didn't get to listen to that one. Okay. Well, yeah, let's nail down Mark Adamus. Try to get get him. He's, you know.
0: That'd be awesome. I've heard he is a super interesting dude. I'm
1: sure you could get uh, some really interesting questions for him, too. Um, (laughs) I, you know, I knew about him for years and there was a lot of like controversy uh, yes. d- different, during s- different seasons, you know, about you know what he did do or what he didn't do, and was it true? And and um, you know, and how does he do post processing and stuff like that? Well, when I finally ended up meeting him, we ended up spending you know a, a bit of time together um, in Patagonia. That's a funny place to run into him. I found him to be extremely generous, very nice and the the things that I wondered about him, they just dissipated. I just was like, "Oh, that guy's a really awesome dude, and he's really paid the price to be able to do what he's been able to do and um that's how I feel about him. So if you end up you know doing a podcast with him um please yeah i've, I've never I w- I I've
0: never there. had any any doubts about him or his work I mean, I think. Well, there was a website around I don't even know it still is, but there was like Mark Adamus fake or something like that dot com. And actually I think I know the guy that created that website. It's just sad that people do that, like, you know, focus on other people, like why not just focus on making your your own stuff better? And if it's who I think it was, like his work is really good too. It's like why you don't need to do that. Like what is wrong? It's just crazy people get insecure and then they they I don't it's just a weird people are weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have um I have a couple of people
1: who I, I you know, I'm I'm out there online so I get crazy amounts of messages from people to the point where I almost can't keep up with them right, anymore. Right. But there are a few people that will a few, a handful of people that'll be like, Oh you know, they're they're telling me all of their things that are bugging them about the industry or about somebody else's work or that's Photoshop too much or whatever you know and i'll just say to them, you know can you in one way or another can you spare me the negativity and here's the deal why not just focus on what you do and enjoy it and Seriously. don't focus on what anybody else is doing. If the world's falling apart, politics, this and that. Just, just, I'm not saying don't get involved in po- politics. I'm, this is not a political statement. But I just did this with somebody, and I just said, you know, why focus on that? And I've, at different times in my career, been pulled into it a little bit, maybe even a lot at different times. But I have learned now where I just don't pay attention to it anymore. I just... I wanna, no, it's toxic. I, I want to be happy. I want to enjoy yeah. my life. I want to be at peace. And you know, there's been a few people out there that have, you know, tried to make my life hard. I've gone out of my way to reconcile with them as as absolutely best, you know, honorably as possible because I don't want to carry that kind of bitterness or whatever and I just do what I do and enjoy what I, what I do. And, you know, hopefully some people appreciate it. And if they don't, they don't, if they do, they do. But that's how I think it takes time. You know, it's wisdom. Sure, wisdom sure. takes it time.
0: Is. It is. It is. Well, shit, man, it's been awesome having the, having the conversation today.
1: Yeah. It was a blast. Uh, I really, yeah, I really appreciate talking you about taking
0: this. the time, man. Yeah. It's fun. And I, I hope you like the format. I just try to keep it chill and like kind of wander around and touch on some different things, but yeah.
1: Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I love talking about it. I could talk about it all day long. It's still, (laughs) um, I've had a few moments of burnout, you know, in 13 years of doing this, but I am generally extremely passionate about what I do still. And, um, especially, you know, helping other people to do it themselves or making connections with people. (laughs) Bye. <laughs>